Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write. Because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, creative writers and storytellers. This is Kat Caldwell, and we are recording the 146th episode of Pencils and Lipstick today, August 23rd, 2022. I am not going to chat with you too long in this sort of first part of the show because I have a fairly long interview, I would say very full interview with James Blatch. If you don't know James, he works with Mark Dawson at the Self-Publishing Formula. He also co-hosts their podcast, Self-Publishing Show. Um, So I think you are really going to enjoy his story of how he came to be a writer. He has quite a diverse background in different jobs, very interesting, um, and how he came to write the books that he writes, which are, I would say, Cold War thrillers. I hope I'm getting that genre correct. Um, So I had a really good time talking with him. We also talk a bit about his favorite social media, which is TikTok, Um, which I am not allowed on due to my husband's job here in DC. But if you are on TikTok, you might want to stay tuned to hear about what he's learned and how he uses it. um, Because he says he doesn't use it exactly like a book talker uses it. He uses it a little bit differently, but that um, he has seen sales from it and quite a few other people make sales from it. So you might want to pay attention to that part of the show. Speaking of social media, if you have anything to tweet to me or write to me about, you can find me at Pencils Lipstick on Twitter. You can find me Pencils and Lipstick all spelled out on Instagram or catcaldwell.author on Instagram, or you can go directly to catcaldwell.com or pencilsandlipstick.com and find me on the contact forms there. All of that goes directly to my email from the website's And if you're enjoying the show, be sure to tell people about it. You can tell them through your social media. You can review the show on whatever podcast app you listen on or just share it with your writer friends, your reader friends. Um, We have lots of author interviews here where we talk about their journey to being a writer and staying a writer and what's behind their books as well. You can also support the show through um, Buy Me a Coffee dot com forward slash pencils lipstick over there you can find videos of the interviews if you become a member of my little personal site there that definitely helps the show go you have keep going you have um different little bonuses that come up every once in a while over there as well and another way that you can support the show is in the interview james blatch talks about his job with Mark Dawson in the self-publishing formula company. And right now they have ads for authors out. Now, 
I suggest you listen to the show first, to the interview where he talks about what Ads for Authors is, who it's really for, who can benefit the most from it. Um, I did buy it this time. It is a little bit of an investment, but it's a one-time purchase. And once I get this next um, duology out and then the sequel to Stepping Across the Desert out, I am going to have sort of these mini series. And that is when I'm going to really start pushing my books. Um, at the moment, I just haven't had time to really look into advertising. And as James says, um, he understands his results because he spent time really looking at it. I'm not going to say more. He will give you more, um, details on that, but definitely check it out and it will support the show. If you end up buying it, if you think it's a good fit for you, um, through the affiliate link, which will be below in the show notes. Other than that, I will have the links to James Blatch in his TikTok and his book, um, Final Flight. That's the first one. And then Dark Flight is this next one that just came out, plus his um, website, which is jamesblatch.com. I'll have all of those in the show notes below. Now, I know that this is a bit of a shorter intro for you. Just know that in my personal life, we are just getting ready for school and that's about it. In order to find the perfect locker shelf, we have gone to three staples and one target, <laughs> which we finally found. Um, and around here in DC, of course, we got on the road at just the wrong time when all of the other cars seemed to get on the road. It was like a cartoon. The roads were clear. We got on the road. The roads were not clear. So we are now sending them off to school tomorrow and at least two of them. And the third one goes on Monday. And that is when I will really sit down and continue writing. I am opening up my writing courses to help anybody who is beginning a book or sort of at the beginning of the book, that's one course. And then the story development course will be going through how, you know, once you have a rough draft or a draft, um, or almost a full draft, how you can go back and really see your book in order to make it the best book that you can make it. Because just as we talk about with James in this interview, just because you finish the first draft doesn't mean that that is the book that will be published. And I think that's hard for us to grasp sometimes. Um, like you might actually finish what looks or feels like a full book. And then when you go back to edit, realize that really what, what you have is the full character or the bones of the book. And what you need to do is rearrange a lot of things or sometimes rewrite some chapters. And that's okay. Um, if you want it to be the best book that it can possibly be, we have to be open to that, right? We have to be open to killing our darlings as James and I talk about and be willing to um, wait to publish until it's the book that we want it to be. And I think that James has a great story on how worth it it is to wait and to have that book out there that you're really, really proud of. So my courses will be starting up. You can find them, more information about them um, on my website, catcaldwell.com. If you join my writer's newsletter, link in the show notes, you will find a $50 off coupon code to join one of the courses in the fall. 
So I am going to stop talking now and let you guys hear from James Blatch. James Blatch is a former BBC defense reporter and a former BBFC film examiner. He reported for the BBC on the UK military from, among other places, HMS Invincible, Operation Desert Fox Buildup, Kuwait, the Ali Al Salam Allied Air Force Base, the Arctic Circle, as well as covering the UK air offensive during the Kosovo conflict in 1999. James Blatch is also the director of the self-publishing Formula Limited, an online course provider for independent authors. He co-hosts the weekly self-publishing show podcast. His first book is called Final Flight, and the second book that just came out is called Dark Flight. You can find all of those links in the show notes below. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Pencils and Lipstick. I'm Kat Caldwell, and today I'm excited to introduce you to, if you don't know him already, James Blatch. Hello, James. How are you doing? Hey, Kat. I'm quite excited to be on a podcast called Pencils and Lipstick. <laughs> I mean, I use a pencil occasionally when playing golf. But I Honestly, it's a long time since I've worn lipstick. No lipstick. No lipstick. <laughs> since your BBC days. <laughs> probably. Oh. Probably not even. I did used to wear a little bit of makeup on the BBC, and that when, <laughs> yes. I, when I first started doing this, I don't know if it's. I think my daughter nicked it when she became of an age where makeup was suddenly interesting to her. Uh, but I used to Your have chapstick. some. Yeah, my chapstick. <laughs> but so I used to have some like Mac face powders. It's just an old BBC habit. I don't do any of that anymore. I'm, no, I'm, you're all natural. Today. Exactly, raw and ready. <laughs> you got to get the shine so that they can see the back. Yeah, back uh, <laughs> background, right? Well, tell everyone why you were at the BBC, I guess, and a little bit about yourself. Sure. Oh, you want me to do that now? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yes. Uh, well, I've had quite a varied career. I think uh, I seem to have some form of very long-term attention deficit disorder, where every ten years <laughs> I change everything in my life. So I started off, I, I failed school, I should say, I was a flunk school, didn't really engage with it. So I sort of drifted out into computer programming, mm. um, something you could do without qualifications back in the late 80s, early 90s, <laughs> and actually become quite lucrative as well, because there were, you know, if you got a skill in that, you were very portable in that area. So I did that, but really wanted to do something else. And um, uh, I suppose I was slightly obsessed with the BBC and with, with the media and television and radio. Mm-hmm. I was a big radio geek as a kid. So I started looking seriously at that and worked my way in to that, just making the team, oh, okay. going in on a Saturday to local radio stations and offering to cover sports for free that they weren't covering, like ice hockey, in, which is not huge in the UK, and and, and did that. And eventually got a job um, that way. It was hard. I, I mean, I've made it sound easy. It was a very, very hard slog, about two years of working a daytime job for quite a serious American company based in Los Angeles. I was in the UK, but they were an LA company, and they... In the UK, I think we're slightly more casual about like leave and stuff. In America, you know, you got these five days. They hated the fact yes. they had to give us 18 days a year. It was legal minimum. <laughs> and and the idea that you would do something else, which might detract from your job. So it was all, On the side. It was oh, all yeah. secret. It was horrible. Uh, but anyway, eventually I happily was able to hand in my notice and I worked for the BBC. And I did that for about 15 years. I, I started in radio producing like mid-morning programs. Then I became a radio presenter. Then I cross-trained into news journalism, became a reporter, became a, 
a TV news reporter and a TV presenter. So in the end, I was reading wow. the news um, towards the end of my 15 years. But I specialised in uh, defence and military stuff, uh, okay. which was quite good for me because there was another sort of passion area of mine, sort of developed a bit more when I was older. And the newsroom was full of people who, um, yeah, my sounds disparaging, my friends still, but they came from kind of reading history and journalism at, at university. Okay. And so for them, it was the arts and humanities and politics and stuff. And there weren't too many people who are geeky plane spotters. And so when, but the military's big, right? It's a huge story quite right. often. And when, yes. the, when these stories happened, they would classically just look at me panicked saying, what is this airplane? And what's this <laughs> tank called? And I, I was became the sort of expert in house. So that was great for me. And I got sent yeah. around the world, Middle East and the Arctic Circle and everything doing doing that stuff. You got to the Arctic Circle? Got to the Arctic Circle. Yeah, we went up to a place called Tromso, which is, uh, you know, well into the Arctic Circle in North Norway with a uh, British Harrier Squadron who, they just take all the jets up there once every two years and operate for like a month in freezing conditions to make sure that should they need to, they can do. They work out all the things that don't work <laughs> and do work in that environment. So we went up there. We actually made a small documentary about, about all of that. Oh my um, gosh! Yeah, it's like if the if the sun goes out, the British military can still work their planes. Still operate, <laughs> although interestingly, for the first forty eight hours they couldn't because they opened the hoods on their Harriers when they land because it's hot, and even in the yeah. Arctic Circle inside the Harrier, they've been working hard, and all the Harriers snow was so thick and so wet, all the Harriers sort of short circuited, and oh so my gosh. that was lesson number one uh yeah. on, on day one so we got all of that on tape which was fun but anyway so we did that um <laughs> did they and I, let you show that on tape though yeah they showed <laughs> us we showed a flight lieutenant on the on the wings of an aircraft sweeping snow off and no. <laughs> and he's a, a lieutenant is what we call a lieutenant you call a lieutenant is a um is an officer and i remember getting i used to love these letters there's some I, I do think when i was in the bbc people were quite um snobbish about the listeners didn't really like mm. contact from them but I used to love it and I would get letters from people who served in the air force 30 years ago saying you'd never get an officer standing on the wing of a plane with a brush in his hand in fact frankly the last thing you want to see is an officer with a brush in his hand because who knows what he's going to do what he's going to mess <laughs> up and uh, so that made me laugh and when I went back into the squadron I sort of said this the the and they said everyone's been ripping me about that because you put it on tv and I, of course I'm supposed to get somebody else to go up there and do that I used to love all that That's stuff funny. And, That's um, funny though. I, I yeah. love how things have changed. I mean, my my whole family's military, you know, uh, except for me. Um, but I think the American military. Well, no, you'd probably still get you still get that officer thing. But I mean, you guys have the historical you know, different class systems and the officers yeah. being, you know, so that was, that's a much bigger deal, 40, 50, probably. I don't think, I mean, I don't think he point. was supposed to be doing it. I think, I think, <laughs> like I think he just he looked around slips. and he thought this snow's falling so hard. Is this going to be my, he was the engineering officer, right? So he said, this is going to be my problem in half an hour if, if we yeah. let this thing fill up with snow. So he was just doing it, which is you know, a good way of working. Yeah, right. I'd rather have an officer knowing what, what work is, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, there's an expression in the army, British army, amongst the ranks, amongst the kind of the uh, the, the privates and the corporals is that the two most dangerous things in in the army are the enemy with a gun and an officer with a map. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so never trust an officer with a map. You know, they need the, the officers like, you know, in charge, but not necessarily supposed to be doing, <laughs> doing operational things. Anyway, I think that's just joking. But. This is true. I think anyone who has military in their family will laugh at that. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. We grow up with all this. So you, you're you kind of 
I guess scrappy. You you go from what interests you and you find a way to work in that in that area then. Um you didn't yeah. really have so you never went to journalism school, they never made you go learn it's how to her, I just think within the BBC it called a what's it called now? It was a journalism conversion course. That was what it was. Converted you from being a normal person to a journalist. <laughs> and I was behind the curve, actually, secretly. I, I kept it a secret. I was quite a good bluffer, which is what being a reporter is all about. But I was rubbing shoulders with people, many of whom had been to Oxford or Cambridge or uh, you know good universities. And I did, at that point, if you'd looked carefully, I was lacking in some of that background education mm. and classic stuff I, I make up for it by having a real thirst for knowledge about stuff but I probably found I, I was more sensitive to it than other people I probably found I felt got caught out a few times just not having residual knowledge about religions and stuff like that that you perhaps pick up through the university education but mm. I learned learn quickly and like I said I could bluff but uh yeah and then I got I think I got to the point where I've done most things and if you're in television news very long you start to do the, the same stories I mean literally sometimes the same yeah. stories every year come up you get sent it's like Groundhog Day literally that's built that is based around a TV reporter isn't it Weatherman doing the same damn story right. every year so that yes. does happen and whilst it's unusual looking back to to want to, to think oh, I think I've done this now from the position I was in because almost all my colleagues are still there doing it they don't there's not a very high turnover once you get a job presenting on the news or you know standing in front of a tv camera you seem to hold that for life but I had sort of felt I wanted to do something different at that point Mm. and um and I saw an advert in the paper for a film examiner somebody who sits and watches films and decides whether what the age rating should be for them and if that sounds like a great job (laughs) doesn't it sound like like the best job in the world and um I'd sort of been fascinated with this world because I remember watching a documentary in the 80s on the BBFC, which is our our film classification organisation, and was really interested in it, wondered who they were uh, and how you got that job. And then suddenly, yeah. years later, this little advert in, in the paper in the UK, and I thought, I'm applying. Um, I applied, as it turned out, along with 2,000 other people for six jobs because it's a massively oversubscribed thing. Lots of teachers, policemen apply for that. You know, People with trading standards, we'd call it in the UK, people working okay. in local councils, some sort of regulation background. But they actually were quite interested in journalism as well. And, and I was lucky in the sense, I think, that one of the people on the panel sifting through the applications recognised me as being mm. on, on TV and, and said, oh, you know, be interested to interview him. So I got through the first hurdle and then managed to get, get offered the job. So, yeah, I, I did something that unusual, sort of quit a, quit a TV job and did this. And was it fun or was it? it yes, <laughs> I mean, yes. Up to expectations. Yeah. Fundamentally, it's a really fun job. So it wasn't an early start to the day. Um, it was fairly relentless. I did it for seven years and we watched, yeah. I think it was something like 400 and... 50 or 500 minutes a day oh uh, my gosh four and a half days a week so Wednesday afternoon you got off not got off but you got it for admin catch-up and stuff like that but the other days of the week you had um you had a relentless program you could take some of it home which was a relatively modern thing in those days and I should also say that over the year about about 80,000 90,000 minutes of that was pornography because that was a huge chunk of what, what we did there. So pornography was like this big, like a third of all submissions. And the other two thirds were every feature film that gets released into the cinema comes through and anything released on DVD 
in the UK. So and there's you, that many films that are released. It's ma- I, of course, it was mainly DVD stuff. So you'd get into theatre, we call it theatre, um, two or three times a week you'd go and do, maybe twice a week you'd be in theatre. So you'd look on, like, you know, what day is it? So it's Monday. So I'd look at my programme, which gets published in the afternoon for the next day and see, oh, okay, I'm in theatre in the morning or the afternoon. And in the morning, you have a look what's coming in. And, and actually, what the fun thing was is you'd see film titles that would mean nothing to you. And they could be a small indie film that's barely going to see the light of day, or it could be a $50 million James Cameron project that you just, you wow. know, that's going to be released in six months. So, you, you know, you'd sit there and watch it all. Um, and then the afternoon could be three hours of WWE or something, <laughs> or more likely porn. And um, and each one, you everything you watched, you, you wrote a report on. So yeah, a brief description of what it was, the context. And then a description of the issues that you are basing your category decision on. Okay. And then underneath that, kind of a log of the of the work as it goes through. So where people swear, where a particular incident happens. So, oh wow! So, so you go, have to pay attention. You have to. Yeah, you can't turn away from the screen. You can't turn away from the screen, not even briefly. So if there's, if, oh, wow. so the, one of the things they do at the interview stage is they do show you lots of different stuff, including some pretty raw stuff because you can't be somebody who thinks oh I can't watch that you have to watch it <laughs> and you have oh, to be able to no. describe it and then but I'll tell you what was interesting about it for me the kind of life skill I got from that is is understanding the role of context in everything so yeah. context was so important so you could get you could get the same action it might be a man punching a woman okay it sounds like quite a strong moment in any film and we always pay a bit more attention to male on female violence for obvious reasons but the context surrounding it could mean that would go at PG, unlikely PG, potentially at 12, might be 15, might be 18, or you might even refer it to your superiors and saying, I think this might be a reject, a cut, depending on what surrounds it. Is it exploitative? Okay. Is it there for entertainment? Is it glorifying violence on women? Is it a really good documentary on domestic violence that should be seen by a wider audience? Is it a comedy where it was all a bit slapstick? I mean, all those things, that surrounding context, can change the way that moment has an impact on somebody. And oh, I thought yeah. I thought that was quite a good sort of life skill of, of understanding context. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially going into was your next job writing <laughs> or, or understanding story. I yes. mean, because watching films like that, I mean, you're watching stories instead of reading them. You're looking at them at, as a whole. In a whole different way than just a viewer, right? You're yeah. looking at context and you're looking at like how the story's going through. You have to be able to rate it. Like that's a big, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, so I would assume that you're seeing this film in a completely different way than if you would just go to the movie theater with your, you did, your kids. You did definitely become quite adept at working out whether a film worked or not. So we weren't there yeah. to say this is a good film or a bad film, right. except it sort of does matter because... If it's not a very good film, if it doesn't work in inverted commas, um, then you're going to have less leeway to say, okay, so five uses of, uh, can we swear on the, on the podcast? Was it? A, I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So five uses of fuck, for instance, yeah. uh, is right on the border in the UK between 12 and 15. So we have a slightly different uh, set so of categories for you. So you're sitting there literally counting, literally counting the number of times. And in PG-12 films, 12 in the UK, PG-12 in the States, they will 
when I was there, they'd always put in one youth. They would if it's a, if it's a film aimed at kind of teenagers, mm-hmm. kind of I don't know Jennifer Aniston rom com or something, it would have one youth in it normally, and that would be fine. But once you got to four or five, you're then as an examiner, you'll start to think, okay, so what is the justification for this staying at twelve, not going to fifteen? And if it was a rather rubbishly written film with no character development and didn't really work, it it feels exploitative and there's no real reason to save it. If, however, it was a really brilliant film and these are some really powerful moments, you would make a case for it staying at 12. So you got to notice films that worked and didn't work. And I remember, what was it? The, uh, the Marvel films started to come out at that time. Oh, yes. Become quite big. And some of them had really good character development and really worked. And I do remember sitting through the Hulk film, the first Hulk film, and it was terrible. I mean, it was actually quite a well-made film, but he's exactly the same at the beginning of the film. He's at the Yeah, he's at the I end. don't understand him. So it doesn't, you know, the Banner character didn't, it was doing the same thing. And and I I was watched enough films at that stage to prepare me for writing, for started to work out what the ingredients were of a story that made sense or was compelling and a story that left you flat. Um, yeah. So that was probably a good byproduct of watching a gazillion films over seven years. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand Bannon. I think he's really mm. uh, Banner. Bannon. Mm. What is it? I think Banner. I think Bannon might <laughs> Banner. be that. Yeah, I think the, Bannon's uh, a politician. Yeah, right? <laughs> probably in prison <laughs> anyway, by now. And that guy. Same yeah. thing. <laughs> they haven't yeah. changed. Yeah. <laughs> a little yeah. bit whiny. <laughs> um, yes, that's probably why they're yeah. Um So when, as you're doing that, how then did you get? into book writing so there was one more intermediary intermediary okay. stage <laughs> so at the bbfc i had some spare capacity because you're doing the same thing although it, it took a lot of time you had to be in the office most of the time um i had some spare capacity so i started doing some freelance sort of crossover ex-bbc stuff so i'd either go back to the bbc like on a sunday mm. and present radio programs as a freelancer which is how i started or i'd go and work for corporate stuff like making corporate videos and that side of it suddenly started growing to the point where I had to uh, contact an ex-BBFC colleague called John Dyer who was an examiner alongside me he'd left he'd taken redundancy and left and started a video production company so he and I met and I said look they're asking me to go to Berlin to film something I can't do that could you and your team go off and do that and so they did that we did that quite a lot but it got to a point where I was running ragged. I remember when I spent a weekend in Warsaw filming the World Scrabble Championships. Do you have Scrabble? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the World Scrabble Championships were taking place in Warsaw. And for some reason, we were doing the PR for it. So I went off there. That was a really interesting story. It happened that weekend. We won an award for this, which I was quite pleased about. Although I was working by myself, I should say. Um, where a Chinese player insisted that, I think he was Canadian, his opponent stripped naked because he thought he was secreting tiles on him. He said there was an extra tile on the board and he's obviously got them. <laughs> so anyway, that became our global story. So it made the news around the world. did he actually strip naked? They, they t- did not in front of everybody. They took him off into a room with security and, uh, and basically searched him to make sure he didn't have tiles. Oh, wow. I know. They're so very serious. That's the sort of thing I was doing. I'm Wait, trying- okay, what language do they do Scrabble in? Is it English? Is English. Is it British English? Hmm, I can't remember. That's a good question, so, though. I, I suspect it's probably US English. That's okay. a big, big difference, isn't it? Well, and still, I mean, how amazing for a Chinese oh, Scrabble player yes. to play in 
any yeah. <laughs> I mean, or anyone in your second language. It's quite yeah. Difficult. Wow. Okay. So they're serious in Scrabble. <laughs> they were serious. This was serious. It was, it was like going to a poker tournament, I guess. It was just a room for people playing and then gradually being knocked down into this final two. But uh, so I did, yeah, I went through that. I remember it was a busy weekend and I had to be back in. I had run out of leave. Couldn't take any more leave. Uh, days for the BBFC so I had to be in a screening room in Soho in London at 10 30 on Monday morning Ooh. and I had to send these rushes at one o'clock in the morning in Warsaw so there's no way of leaving the night before so I got to this this TV station we sent these rushes that we'd done for the weekend went back to my hotel got a few hours sleep woke up got into a cab and this is Poland it might be slightly better now but this is middle of winter minus 20 it's absolutely free icicles having everywhere the cab was like this old Russian <laughs> car we trundled 20 minutes whatever it was to the airport I got to the airport looked at my watch I had about an hour and a half to get my flight so that's absolutely fine but then I realized I'd done that thing I've only done it once never done it since I left my passport wallet oh, and no. cash in the safe in the hotel room Oh, that's horrible. So I phoned, it was a Hilton as well. And I remember thinking, you can't even phone individual hotels anymore. I was going to speak to a switchboard somewhere in Seattle or something. So I phoned the 0800 number. But funnily enough, they really quickly put me through to reception. This guy was really helpful. And he said, yep, we'll send someone to the room now. What do you want me to do? I said, can you stick them in a cab and send them to the airport? I'll be standing here. And they did it. And they they got it to me about 45 minutes before my flight. I gave Oof. the ca- I gave the cabbie all the cash I had, and made my flights. Sat on the plane. It was the same weekend. John, I'd given John some work to do. Actually, funnily enough, in Berlin, at the same time I was flying back. And but Warsaw, Berlin, and London were in a straight line across Europe. So as I was flying that way, they were flying from London to Berlin to do a job that I couldn't do because I'd run out of leave. I landed in Heathrow, took the tube into. Soho and was five minutes early for my screening enough time to get a coffee but I sat down in that screening room met my colleague to watch the film and said to myself I can't do this anymore no kidding I've got to how make did a... you not fall asleep I know I probably did well don't <laughs> you're like it's fine yeah <laughs> yeah exactly we were very friendly Caitlin could watch it and I'll have a little snooze uh, we didn't really do that if anyone's listening um so, oh my gosh no that sounds that yeah. sounds pretty so Awful. I did that, took redundancy, and then joined forces with John. And we created a company. John, John, <laughs> he's another colleague of his, two Johns and me. We ran that video production company for a couple of years, which was really fun. Went around the world, made some really good friends, got some really good clients. Uh, it wasn't particularly lucrative. It's video production. Sounds like it's going to be great, but you expenses eat everything. Equipment's expensive. Travel's okay. expensive. And you end up with not a lot of money to share. I was probably earning less than I was earning on my salary at the BBFC. So we were casting about for another idea. Now, at the same time, another BBFC film examiner colleague called Mark Dawson was starting to no become... No way. Yeah. He's over there. So he's, <laughs> he's a film examiner with us as well. He's still there, but we talked occasionally. We were friends, and he, he started to be really successful selling his books. I knew he'd written a couple of novels. I read one of them when I was at the BBFC, and I knew he was writing another novel, and I helped him... Uh, with some of the, I did some pre-reading for him mm-hmm. on it. But then I started to be on his, get emails from him. And I could see that he was doing something. I didn't know quite what, mm-hmm. but he was pushing himself and pushing his novel. And what he'd discovered, of course, was indie publishing in that what time. What year was this? This was 20, 
14, 13, okay. 14, so around there. So I left I left. So he was really on top of it. He yeah. Knew. Okay. I, I think he's very competitive. And one of our mutual colleagues there had suddenly started making money. This is probably 2009, just by uploading stories to Kindle and watching them sell with no effort Yeah, well, that, those were the yeah. glory years. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so Mark was like, well, I'm not going to let him earn money from writing when I'm a better writer than him. So he's very competitively driven. And he... I mean, he really cracked the code over a couple of years of complete dedication of working out the ecosystem, how it works, right. how to set up mailing lists, what all this stuff was. I was clueless about this. But about 2015, in February, I think it was on March, he called me and said that he he wanted to do a course to teach how to do this for the next mm. kind of generation of indie authors. And would I uh, consider doing the video side of it? How much would it cost for him to hire us to do the video side because he'd had no clue how to produce the video element. Um, John and I had a chat about it and we immediately thought this could be the sort of thing that we'd like to do because it's it's not, it's absolutely, absolutely not passive income, but it's scalable. That's the word. It's scalable. You kind of create the yeah. course once. So we went to this. I said, let's have a coffee in London. I'll bring John. And we went into that meeting thinking. Had you, had you heard about courses? Sorry, have you no. heard about courses at that point? Like no. 2015, yeah, there weren't very many, were there? It's hard to, It's hard now when, like, the internet's so, it just keeps doubling in size. Yes. But yeah. it well, wasn't a big deal back then, was Nick it? Nick Stevenson had done his first 10K readers. Uh, first 10K, yeah, readers, all right. Uh, first 10K, his, his course, he'd done that. And that's what Mark saw and thought, this is brilliant. This is exactly what okay. we should be doing. But we were, we went. But that into was that. more like slides. That wasn't really because I had that course. Oh yes, okay. It wasn't I, I, our our original course was slides, probably. I mean, it was talking over them. But sure, okay, yeah. But I'm I'm trying to think of like a, an average person who doesn't really know the background. I guess like sound was still hard back then. Software to do all the editing and things was st- still probably yeah. quite expensive. It was easy for us. In video, right, it's working easy for on video you. editing, but most yeah. people, the, you know, the camera phone was not up to standard at that stage. <laughs> no. People didn't have video editing the software, microphone. and if they did have video editing software, they didn't know how to use it. Took quite a while to to yeah. use it, and yeah, you're right, yeah. it was not accessible, not easily accessible, and a lot of the stuff that was out there was pretty ropey. Whereas John and I always, obviously, because of our background, we wanted to polished, yeah, uh, produced stuff, and um, yeah. So you know, we went to that meeting, and John and I decided in advance we were going to kind of ask, "Do you want to go into business rather than pay us a fee?" And okay. Mark, Mark has had exactly the same thought. So we both sat, there oh, nice, and he said, "Do you want to go halves on the business?" Like basically halves would be, be him fifty percent, me and John twenty five each. But you know, we we had the video side of it, and so that's how that company was formed, and. Um, and we is haven't that, looked back. Really. Is that self-publishing That's show? Self-publishing formula, which was the formula. name of the company. I can kind of do regret coming up with that name, but I don't know who came up with it, but it's a bit unwieldy and long. But it's become a bit of an institution in the indie world now. So we're stuck yeah, with it. Yeah, it has. Yeah, absolutely. Um because I, I mean, titling is difficult. <laughs> so, yeah. And at that moment when you have to get your, I don't know if you have to get your you know, register over here, you have to register your LLC or whatever. And they're like, you have to have a title. You can't yeah. just like wait nine months for the baby to be born and see what personality <laughs> what it's do you got? look like. I don't yeah. know. So, but I mean, it tells what it's about, right? The self-publishing you're in the indie sphere. I think we looked at yeah. Amy Porterfield and people like that and how they are. She, yeah, she, she does Facebook ads and how, how she titled her courses and stuff like that. And basically they were, 
do you want to sell courses or do you want to run Facebook ads or, you know, that dot com. And that's basically, right. so we, we went down that, that route. We had quite a few bandy yeah. around. Yeah. It's just, it's very long. So I write down selfpublishingformula.com several times a day for various reasons. And I, that's when I regret. <laughs> By hand, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, it does well with, you know, your self-publishing show then is the podcast, right? Yes. And then so self-publishing live is the is the show is the sh- live version of the podcast we do the conference yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean it's an ecosystem i guess we we did the we started the podcast about a year after we started the company as as a lead okay. lead generator for the courses basically wow so you've been doing the podcast for seven six years we're up to episode six. just recorded episode 345 so if you divide that by 52 <laughs> six on about six years yeah, yeah. so i mean Mark Dawson, I guess, then started like the the golden years of indie, I think, is when people in the trad industry didn't really look very kindly on it. But there were lots of people making money on on KU, right? I mean, I was one, I was an expat at that point. All of us expats had a Kindle because books in English were so expensive. And so we were paying that subscription rate probably from the 2010, 2011, whenever that came out, 2011. You know, so if you had a book in there, a lot of people who now are doing really, really well, as I interview them, they started then, you know, and they learned with Kindle and they sort of yeah. went through all those ups and downs and found their voice as writers and found their fans, um, their readers. So that is great for them. But you weren't writing at that point. And a lot of no. us weren't writing at that point. So what, and, and things are different now. So as much as you, you know, Mark Dawson and all have access to all of his knowledge, writing and publishing now is completely different. So <laughs> when did you decide to write? And um, let's talk a little bit about what you've, what you've seen and learned on your journey that, that might, might be more compatible with the rest of us. Yeah, yes, probably my eclectic career. Well, I actually did start writing in 2010. I mean, I did, I, I did a little on and off. I wrote a bit. So, as a, I don't know, 19 year old, I started writing a novel mm. um, about the military. I was very, I'd read lots of Tom Clancy and a guy called yeah. Stephen Koontz, who's one of my favourite authors, which less less well known, but I became a bit obsessed with those books, and so I started writing it. And I remember showing my dad like five pages of foolscap all written out by hand and he went oh yeah he, didn't, he barely said anything about it so i didn't feel particularly encouraged by that interaction <laughs> which was uh foreshadowing of what was to come but um but then you know who becomes a novelist in those pre-indie you know you meet them occasionally but it's not wasn't a very common thing and uh and i didn't so push- not not even from the bbc like you didn't ever feel at that point that you had it's maybe the, a name or an in the bbc was it's very short form, right? So I think I learned how to write in a certain way. And I certainly learned about story arcs at the mm. beginning of that process at the BBC, because even a, a, a two minute news package has, you know, they always, the editors always wanted you to have a kind of beginning, middle and end and, and a journey and stuff. But the writing was, I mean, honestly, it was the opposite of novel writing. You had to take a complex story. And in a 90 second package, which is typical length, we would get 45 seconds of script plus clips from people from interviews. So 45 seconds, you've got to tell quite a complex story. Every sentence, every word mattered. So it didn't feel like I was in the right place to write novels, although I do know mm-hmm. a couple of colleagues wanted to. But it wasn't, it was at the BBFC again, probably a bit bored. November the 1st, <laughs> 2010. I'd, 
And I don't know why it was. I remember very clearly the moment. But I was just on Twitter, early days of Twitter. I was oh, yeah. on Twitter. Those are fun. <laughs> yeah. And one of my colleagues, Emily Fussell's husband, may not even, may have just been a boyfriend at that point. He posted and he said, uh, to stave off mental torpor, I'm going to do this. And there was a link. And I clicked on the link and it was to NaNoWriMo. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never heard it of it. It must have been one of the first yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Literature and Latte, whatever they're called in that, that organization. But I, I'd never heard, was that Scrivener? I can't remember. Anything. No, it's something about the light, isn't it? That does NaNoWriMo. Anyway. I, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, there, is, there was some organization that pushed it. So I immediately, honestly, I didn't even read the blurb. I didn't read what it was about, how it worked. I never looked at that link again. I just opened a Word document and started writing a novel. And it honestly, it started falling out of me. And it wasn't the novel I started when I was nice. 19. It was, uh, it was a story. I kind of knew what was going to happen from the beginning. It was based on the Royal Air Force. And I, I, I had a combination at that point of growing up with a father who was in the Air Force, who didn't talk about it very much. But as I got older, learned more about what he did and became interested in that. And combined that with my own experiences as a defense reporter flying around the world with the Air Force and flying flying in their jets right. and so on. So I was in the right place, I think, to write the novel and just started going on it and and got quite into it very quickly. So like day three, I, I worked out I've got to do 1,700 words a day. I even bought a tiny little laptop so I could sit on the train. And something that helped me was that I, I posted probably on social media some of that was doing it. And one of my BBC colleagues who was producing quite a big radio program, a national radio program in the UK, said to me, oh, would you come on and talk about it? Sounds like a oh, wow. interesting talk. So that was good. So this was like day four of the month. And she booked me in for the following Thursday. And honestly, by the weekend, I was like, this is suddenly to go from zero to writing 1,700 words a day was, was a lot. Yeah. And I was running out of steam at that point, even though the story was there. And the only reason I kept going to Thursday, I think it's because I was going to be on the radio. And I thought, well, I can't turn up on the radio, talk about <laughs> having quietly quit. So I carried on. And it turned out on the Thursday that she meant the following Thursday. So oh, no. in a way, that's the reason I'm a writer, because that kept me going over that really difficult hump in right. the middle of trying to get going. And once I, once I got around to the second Thursday in the middle of the month, I wasn't going to stop at that point and, right. and finish the book. So that's kind of how I became. But then I would say Is that, that your first book then? It, it was the first draft of my first book, oh. but it doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to what was published later. So it it was rambling and all over the place. And I, despite being at the BBFC, and I didn't really properly apply a lot of the story structure rules to it. I didn't really know how many characters you're <laughs> supposed to have, or uh, none of us do. <laughs> no, yeah, so you know it's clueless. And some of the writing, I, I must dig it out one day and have a look at it. Some of the writing is probably okay in it, and some of it's a bit confusing. But I sort of got to the end of it. And then it became too difficult, and I was just not well equipped enough to do the editing. I didn't know my, you know, the, the first editing draft that you do yourself right. before you. I didn't know where to start, and it eventually gave up, and it, it just sat in the drawer. Well, the so then did you drawer. rewrite it from scratch with that sort of same well, idea in mind? Or? So then, what happened is that in 2016, we decided to do this. We did the first course we did with Mark was called Facebook Ads for Authors. It's just mm. what it says on the tin which is quite advanced we basically got to have a series out at least a few books and and to run facebook ads which we'll talk about in a moment um and then he really wanted to do the original idea was to do a 
beginner's course, a foundation course of how to become an indie writer. Once you've finished your okay. book, how do you set up the whole marketing uh, system? And he said, let's do that. And I'm going to use your book as a guinea pig. So you've got to finish that book because that will be, we'll format it, we'll get the cover done. You know, it'll be basically the book we use in the examples all the way through, set up the manliness. It sounds like a great thing because obviously I get a quite good platform. But behind all that was a real struggle for me. I was, I don't know why it was so slow, but I really struggled to actually understand how to write this novel. And and I did write it again. I, I rewrote the whole thing and I cut it down. I think I think when I finished that first one, it was 198,000 words. So long, oh, wow. long for a thriller, right? So then I wrote a 45, 50,000 word version of it, which everything happened really quick. And I read one of Mark's books, which really bounced along. But I was crap at doing this, right? So I'm not, you know, it was it was quick, but not things happened too quickly. It was unbelievable. And I gave right. it to an editor who was very polite about it, but basically said some work to do here. I could see bits and pieces that might work. Um, and about that point, I was feeling quite depressed. I think... You know, as, I, as we all do after our editors get back to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. So that that kind of made me think, I don't think this is ever going to get done. It became a bit of a standing joke, a joke that I quite enjoyed. I wasn't bothered about it within the community that, you know, is it ever going to be published? But it was nagging away at me. And, and I did a podcast interview with Jenny Nash, uh, who's an editor in Los Angeles, runs Author Accelerator, big program. She did book coaching. I didn't know what book coaching was. I knew what editors were. I knew this idea. You finished the book and handed it over to an editor. I didn't know that you could employ somebody to work with you during the writing mm-hmm. phase. And at the end of the interview, I said, I'm not just saying this, Jenny, but sign me up because this is what I need. And she mm-hmm. she worked with me. She was fantastic, actually. And I credit her with, with really shaping that story because she asked me at the beginning, why do you need to tell this story? That's where we're going to start. Why do you need to tell this story? Not want to tell it. Why do you need to? So I suddenly thought about my dad, all became quite personal, what what the essence of the story was, which is my dad's very stiff upper lip, very old school. There were no hugs, no kisses. He didn't even talk about his career. He stopped flying before I was old enough to see him fly. So I didn't even know he was a pilot when I was a kid until a bit later. And and really, it wasn't a great way of being brought up. You're not taught properly how to love and be loved and all those things that perhaps I am better with my children. And so this novel, the theme of it, which I told, I think I told in a sort of rambling way to Jenny in that that chat, is the price we pay for that stiff upper lip. Ah, uh, yeah. So, so you I need like it that. in war, right? You need soldiers to have yeah. stuff. You need them to turn the other cheek and get on with it, because otherwise we won't have an armed forces. They can't all be hugging each other and, and going to see counsellors. <laughs> they need to basically park it, bury yeah. it, stuff it down right. there, do their job, and then at some point, hopefully, deal with it. Well, a generation didn't deal with it. They just stuck yeah. it down and it became, in the end, un, unopenable. And so the price paid for that. That's what the theme of that book was. And once that thing. started, that unlocked. So she started to talk about every chapter should have a sense of that theme in it, every sentence, ideally, you know, every scene and and the book itself. Um, and, yeah, it was brilliant. So I worked with a coach, got the book written in a way I really liked. The coach got me sort of overwriting it deliberately where you'd you'd, you'd put in italics what everyone was thinking after they said something why they did it which is a not a great read but a good way of a a first draft working because then if you strip all that stuff out and you leave it unsaid in the kind of Stephen King way is is you trust your readers to know what's going on that's interesting yeah yeah it made real sense and I'm really you know really proud of that first book it's the uh 
that that's that you know we all have that one book in us right that's, that was it <laughs> No, that's, what's the name of that book? That is the final flight. Which if you're watching, final flight. Ugh, this is the new the new cover of it. So that's that was my first book, and the second book is a bit different. The second book is a much more kind of written in the style of a Clive Cussler, Mark Dawson kind of bit. Is more. it the same character? It's one of the same characters overlapping, okay. but he's a minor character in the first book. Um, so the first book set in the UK. The second book is set in the US. It's wholly okay. American. So that's interesting. Um, but I think this I is. Mean, so I was just going to say, this is much more to do for me to be able to do a series of quite easy to read Cold War thrillers. This book yeah. is a little bit more kind of from the heart literary. Okay. So, but but I mean, it, it sounds like it's a good place to start your writing career. Really understanding what that book and that story is about and that character is about. Because I think a lot of writers have a story, like you said, it, it comes quite easily onto the page, right? You. For some reason, a lot of people have this, this, I, I guess, history, but then it's not quite what they envisioned at the end. And I think a lot of us don't understand that just because it comes easily in the beginning doesn't mean that that's the book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the final product. And I, I mean, that's one of the problems with indie publishing on one hand, like we have to pay for everything up front. So if you need the help, um, you've got to go find it. I'm probably trad publishing these days anyway. They, they're they not going to sit with you like they did with Fitzgerald or whatever. Yeah. You know? But it, we might, it, like you say, you didn't know what book coaching was. I didn't know what book coaching was until probably a year ago, that it's finding what is the essence of that story. And it might it might not be worth even keeping that first draft yeah. because that's not really what the story is. It's like, it's a lot of work, especially in these days of um, rapid release. <laughs> Have you yeah. heard of the, you know, I mean, some people can write a book in a month, which really boggles well, three days, mind. Three days, four days, <laughs> some of the romance authors it's, turn them out. Three a month, oh it's ridiculous. It's crazy. And I mean, some of them are really good at them. Some in the indie world, you pass by the book. You know, yeah. because they can't haven't quite found that essence of why they're writing the book, right? And and it comes through. So I think it's pretty amazing that you found instead of just saying, "Oh, whatever, I f I finished this." Mark Dawson will help me get it out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, is he a tough? Is he a tough friend? Like, would he have told you, "No, this is crap. We're not using." We're not I don't, using I don't this think book. he's ever read it. I don't think it mattered <laughs> to him what was in the book. Yeah, he, he just wanted. He a, just wanted a. He wanted a product. There. Oh well, you didn't sell it. If he has <laughs> read it, he book. hasn't said anything to me about it. But um, but the, yeah, no, I, I agree, and I think <clears throat> I think the learning process is that okay. So so even after that conversation with Jenny, when I thought okay, actually I have something, and she was really excited <clears throat> about this. It was quite an emotional conversation for me to have with her. She was really excited. So, so thank you for sharing that. And this means your book is going to be good. This means it's going to be good. But now we're oh, that helps, yeah. work work out to get there. But working out how to get there it's technical right so you you know you you it's this is really i can't quite explain this but I, it's took me a while to work out that how you force situations but you create everything right so if, you, if there's a yeah. moment where somebody's confronted with something and it's all gone wrong and they realize they've been the author of their misfortune you have to create everything that leads up to that point so it's yeah. all it's all contrived and i think going into it there's this rather airy poetic thing in your mind that it's all going to happen naturally but you have to make this shit up right yeah. you have to make it up and create it and that's when you and it has to make sense <laughs> and it's going to make sense and, and, and get to that point and if you get it a little bit wrong 
that set piece scene you've always had in your mind is not going to work. And that's the sort of thing I saw. horrible? Yeah. So so, and that's the worst thing an editor can say to you is I don't really see why he jumped off. Why is this scene here? Like, because it's beautifully written. Yeah, exactly. Didn't you hear this? Because I love this scene. you read about the sunset? Um, Yes. Yes. And it's usually those scenes that don't need to be there. And that, I guess that's why, is it Stephen King's Kill Your your Darlings? Kill Your Darlings. Because you write, that's probably the first time you envision that character, at least in my experience, that's what happens. And I write this, oh, this is going to be a great, you know, book. And a lot of times I try to jam that scene in there somewhere. And it's yeah. always, it always gets taken out because it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's does not needed, is it? And I, I think, <laughs> do you think of all the writing books, Stephen King's on writing is the one that's given me the most useful information. There's a lot of writing books out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, that's the one. And that's exactly right. So, Trusting your reader and putting in less, getting in late to a scene, leaving early, really, really good advice. I'm watching um, Better Call Saul at the moment, watched um, Breaking Bad before, and I think that's a really good series to watch for Vince Gilligan, for me, is one of the great TV writers in the world at the moment, and he does that. He he joins a scene after it started, and he leaves before it's finished. um, Interesting. Brilliant way of uh, doing it, and a good way of writing. I did not get into Better Call Saul. I just couldn't get past that. That first episode. <laughs> like, well, yeah, anyway, we'll leave. Yeah. We'll leave that. It's worth so, doing cats at some point. <laughs> I watch other things. <laughs> I mean, the problem with writing, being a writer now, is I watch everything as a writer. Yeah. And my kids are like, "Why are they doing that?" Well, because the writer needed the character, and they're like, yeah. "Shut up, <laughs> mom." <laughs> Ruining it for me. Well, you can imagine being a <laughs> film examiner. Yes. They ruined watching films for a long yes. time. I can only just start to watch them again. I bet. Now. Yeah. You can't just relax and watch. Start, start counting every time they swear. Ant Man, yes. This oh, it's just gone. I've been rated this way. Just gone to fifteen. This film. <laughs> so, with that first book, then they did they use it as the example? And yeah, it's still there. Which and one was it? The one hundred one. This is one hundred one. Yeah. So the final flight or the last flight, I think it was called at that time. I changed the name just before it got um uh, got published. Actually, someone else did a big blockbuster that summer called The Last Flight. Um, <laughs> But it's uh, yeah, it's used as the example all the way through it. Not okay. not really this version. This version got reshaped by that process with Jenny, which is after the course sure. is done. But so uh, yeah, it's a version of it. But so uh, yeah. So then we were talking before. I did want to ask you because in the indie world, um, with the rapid release and the some people that have hundreds of books and wow, more power to them. But a lot of us write much slower. And might have a couple books, might have more standalones. We're all supposed to write a series, right? That's one of the big mistakes yeah. of us make is not having a series. Um, have you found any benefit to advertising one book? Has it? What has that experience been? Well, see, so, so we do say that, and the the maths of it are fairly easy, aren't they? That books don't cost very much. We can't sell them for twenty five dollars. Unfortunately, we sell ebooks for like three ninety nine, four ninety nine. And therefore, to advertise it, you've got to have an incredibly efficient advertising campaign that, mm. that will then return a profit on that price point. Um, and so that's why we say you need a series. I would say yeah. three plus books probably to start implementing a kind of marketing system. Having said that, I'm you know one of the things I do is I get a bit nitty about stuff. So you know, Mark said this is Facebook advertising, and I'll, I'll do that because I, I understand it, and I'm like, mm, I can understand that. So I, <laughs> I got into Facebook ads quite competitively, and I spend quite an inordinate amount of time, probably, on working, reworking Facebook campaigns, thinking about the media, thinking about the copy, 
think about targeting, uh, trying different techniques of retargeting, uploading main lists and so on. And I gradually and I constantly refine these, these campaigns. And I was doing it basically on my book, not expecting to make a profit, but so that I could understand Facebook ads and get into them. Okay. Because you never really learn something until you're using it in anger, right? Using it properly. If it's just an academic exercise watching a course, I was never going to pick up the nuances of it. But during that process, most months, most weeks, I made a small loss. Um, and then some months, which is pretty good. Uh, yeah, I made a small profit. And then, kind of, when I did a promotion, if I got, I never got a book bub with this one, but I got a, you know, to free books and stuff. I actually made a decent profit when, when after the dust settled, even with one book. You know, I, I, wow. I, I probably did bargain booksy. I should say, not free booksy. But uh, this is after you've really spent time on Facebook yes. ads. It's not yeah. just like, oh, I'm going to do no. Facebook ads with my bargain. No, this is me me coordinating those campaigns. And okay. I got uh, I got pulled into a Kindle monthly deal, um, which Mark was like, well, I don't think they work anymore. Daily deals are good, but my monthly deal worked for me. And by the end of the year, when I kept a very tight spreadsheet on all my spending and sales, um, I made £945, which is about $1,200 uh, profit over the oh, year wow. on one book and um so for me that was exciting for two reasons one is meant i could look mark in the eye and say i understand facebook advertising now and secondly if i add more books to this collection and with this yeah, system in theory i'm going to be be making money and um and as it stands at the moment uh the last two weeks and i still sort of feel early days with dark flight it was released in june but Mm-hmm. Um, it's taking a while to settle down after the initial sale and so on. So I don't really, you know, I would ex- I would hope having based it on that, I'd make a profit. And I've actually made just under £100, about $110 a week for two weeks in a row on nice. this. Yeah, so, which would make sense, right? If I could just barely make a profit on book one, if I'm yeah. only advertising one and they go through and read two. So I should explain read through is the reason yes. why you need a series because you advertise yes. one book and all your money goes on that. And yes, you're probably not going to make money on one book. But if you've got a series, your reader then hopefully reads books two, three, and four for free, effectively, without advertising. So that's where you right. make your profit. So Right, because they want to read more of your character and they'll go on. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my daughter just finished The Maze Runner. And of course, all she wants to do is go to the bookstore today and buy the next one. You know, you should encourage that low we... cat, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so... What about how much time do you think you spent a week just tweaking those ads before you did find? Because what I want people to understand is everything as indie authors, we have to do everything right. And there isn't that much time in the day to do everything. And so we tend to do lots of things slapdash, right? Yeah. And hope and cross our fingers. And I think that's when we lose money. Yeah. And hope. I th- yeah. <laughs> I think losing money and hope is part of the process as well though <laughs> so just just to say that there will be moments when you feel this is all worthless and and you've lost the money um you've got to be prepared for those for those journeys okay. and, and there's you know i've i've been into sport as an adult i wasn't really into, into it at school but there's lots of metaphors in sport you know you don't every time you go and play sport you're not brilliant at it and everything works well yeah and that's one of the addictions of that uh, and one of the things that teaches you and i think you have to bring that to other areas of life so we see people all the time who say you know i tried it i tried facebook ads they're never going to work i'm writing too niche or whatever whatever reasons they come up with why they're not going to work for them and you look back and they've been doing it for a, a week or something and think, yeah you know it's it, you've got to expect this ups and downs so 
first of all, I am a bit like that. Slapdash. I'm not as structured as probably I should do. I just don't think I'd ever want to be that person who, right, Tuesday morning between nine and nine thirty, I do this, <laughs> and I just don't work like that. I, ta- I do what takes my fancy, and what what takes my fancy has been getting these to work and competing with Mark. <laughs> competing with Mark, quite competitive. And when I don't make a profit, seeing it as a challenge and wanting to know why, right. and I've always got in my mind, I've always got that even if I'm losing money here. I'm I'm learning something. I'm okay. learning this system. Right. That's useful for my other job at SPF. And so, um, right. yeah, but uh, yeah, I can't remember the question. And as an thing. indie author, like we do have to just keep learning. And I think part of that learning is whether whether you're willing to spend that time or, or you should just hire someone to do it. I mean, we all have to make these sort of different decisions, right? Um, but you guys do, just to finish up with, self-publishing formula you guys do have different courses there so if somebody wanted to learn they could yeah so we have um, our two main courses a self-publishing 101 is like the foundation course and mm-hmm. uh marked courses ads for authors is the more advanced course which teaches paid ads so i would say 101 if you're just starting out if you've got once you've got you're writing your second stroke third book good time to do ads for authors and that's that's mm-hmm. how to run facebook ads and amazon ads Excuse right. me, stuff like that. So yeah, um, and we have we have three other courses which are more craft areas. So how to write a bestseller with Susie Quinn, who really dissects stuff we were talking about earlier about um, turning the page and story arcs and right. so on, and book packages. How to revise your book and how to design book covers. So three small smaller courses. Sure. And then how? Um, first, I'm going to ask it. Why the Cold War? Um. Well, because of my dad, I think. Okay. So More... so there's my dad, undemonstrative person, and his father. So my dad's still around. He's 91 um, and quite fit and lives seven miles away from me. Uh, his father was born in 1887, George Blatch. I didn't know him. He died in the 60s when I was born. His father was a professional soldier in the UK. He was like a corporal. Okay. joined the army in 1908 and unfortunately for him was in the army as a professional soldier in 1914 so he spent the whole of the first world war on the western front and, and he, he kept, he's oh, he survived he, too yeah he survived he was injured Jeez. twice he was injured more seriously in may 1917 so that was the he was they called it a blighty wound if you're in if your injury is serious enough it's a blighty wound. you get sent back to england to blighty so he came back and he was by all accounts a difficult man for the rest of his life I'm so sure. you can under, we can only sort of guess what horrors he went through during that time. So my father was brought up right. like that, didn't talk about feelings, didn't confront anything. And I think it was frustrating for my mother later after they got married. And she, I heard her talking to friends about it at various points saying that, you know, he, he sometimes I just want to scream at him, say something, even if it's, I hate you say something. But my dad was always okay. kind of quiet, hysterical. So I was brought up like that. Um, which led me to wanting to understand a bit more of who he was. And I have his flying yeah. log books, and I suddenly realized that not only was he an Air Force pilot, which was quite amazing, but he's a test pilot, uh, a decorated oh my God. A decorated test pilot with a citation the from the Queen in the 60s. Middle of the, so he, he, he's 59, he took his test pilot school uh, year, and he was a test pilot through the 1960s. And he rubbed shoulders with the astronauts and did all this stuff, and... I would never said I mean, a, never said a word like, about it. They were breaking the sound barrier and things like people who yeah. don't know that those were super dangerous. <laughs> that was like one of the most dangerous jobs. That, Which, like we think this will fly. Yeah, go, go find out, it. John. Fly this thing and see if it works. Um, 
Yeah, which didn't help his emotional development because <laughs> on his on his year, his test pilot school, 1959, uh, two members of the class were killed in flying accidents. And on the last day of oh his gosh. school, the chief flying instructor was killed in a flying accident. And then through the 60s, test flying was dangerous, as you said, Kat, in those days. And, and there were several crashes, including the loss of the Vulcan. If you watch on TV, that's the aircraft behind me, which became kind of the reason that I wrote this. I, I came up with the story for this book. That's a Vulcan on the front cover when okay. it was, you know, hit the ground and four people in the back were killed and the two pilots escaped uh, through the ejection system. And my dad was alongside these people in the morning having coffee and they weren't wow. there in the afternoon. It's just how it was. So not surprisingly, he found it difficult yeah. to emotionally connect and does to this day. Um, right. So, so, that was kind of my route into it. But at the same time, I also became a bit obsessed with this golden era of flying, with this exciting yeah. development of aircraft. These jets, which were, you know, this aircraft is almost ahead of its time in 2022. And this was flying in 1950s. You know, this yeah. is a really exciting area for military hardware and stuff. And it's a very boyish thing, I guess, but I'm really interested in it. <laughs> no, that's cool. I like it. I, I mean, I think a lot of people use World War II because it's, you know, you have a, a bad guy and... You, all these things, but I find the older I get, especially the, the Cold War is really interesting because we have technology and things we through spies and planes. Like it, it sort of infiltrates everything that we know in the modern world now. Yeah, because like, we all thought that we were going to blow each other up. You know? Yeah, and I think, <laughs> so the, I think the Cold War wrote the rules of how we operate today. So if you look at Ukraine and Russia today, how yeah. they're operating, that all of that tactics. You know, some of it, I suppose, dates back to the First and Second World War, but a lot of it dates back to the Cold War right. era and Cold War aircraft. And, and you know, these air museums around the States in particular is a brilliant place for these, for these geeky trips that I go on. You know, you go to the Titan Missile Museum in Arizona, if you get a chance to go there, which is these, these holes in the ground that covered southwest United States in the 1950s and 60s. That was the U.S.'s nuclear response when the red button was pushed, which wasn't quite a red button. But when it was pushed, those were the missiles that went up. And you can visit one of them that's still there, maintained as a National Historic Monument. And I sit I sit in those control rooms, gripped by that. that yeah. You know, in all the duck and cover stuff. And I'm fascinated with that whole era, the mentality of it. Um, as yeah. you say, some of the intrigue and stuff. I, I, I will be able to write novels the rest of my life on that subject. Oh, and, yeah. And not run out of ideas. So. Oh, yes, yes, the CIA and the and yeah. MI6 and all the things that they were doing. Um, so I I would assume that your BBC days might help you in a certain social media that you have found you like. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about why TikTok and um, book talk is a big thing? So is that part of it yeah. as well? So TikTok is, I mean, it's a funny platform because most people do associate it with young girls dancing and think it's a slightly <laughs> creepy place for a middle-aged man to be on but I nonetheless became quite into it quite early on so uh, just just for as a user just scrolling and actually I always say this to people because when you first start TikTok actually you do see lots of girls skipping and dancing and lip-syncing but it's that's because it doesn't know who you are at that point right, and it right, doesn't right. take long it's a quick algorithm to learn so after a week or so I was seeing lots of people flying you know they're going off in their aircraft and they have their tiktok accounts or their pilots and uh in the military or whatever um or cold war obsessed and all the stuff on cricket and golf the stuff i'm interested in my feed started to become full of that 
So I classically became a kind of TikTok addict in the evening and had to learn to after an hour and a half to go to bed uh, and leave it. <laughs> and then started to see BookTok, which was hidden from me at first because I wasn't looking for it and the algorithm didn't right. know. Um, and I guess at that point, started to think, well, I should, guess I should start trying to skew my account across. Now I've got my book. And it's worked surprisingly well uh, for okay. me. So I found, first of all, a niche. Yeah. And you're right, my BBC background helped. So I would do, like I've done one this morning, just before this interview, on the fact that the Ukrainian pilots are training themselves on a flight simulator in Kiev to fly the A-10, which they haven't got, which is only the Americans have, but there is some suggestion America might send them over. It'd be a big step diplomatically to do that and potentially would would rattle Putin enough that he would expand the war. So that's why it's not happening yet. But nonetheless, the Ukrainian pilots are very resourceful. They've locked themselves in a room and built these flight simulators and virtual headsets. So they're ready to go when the A-10s arrive. So wow. I did a little piece on that using my, I guess, my kind of BBC journalism days of fronting up and using some video and saying this is what's happening. Well, um, writing 45 seconds for you, is that that's not as difficult as it might be for No, exactly. For so I have some of that. And uh, yeah, my first one still were probably a bit long. Um, but yeah, that one this morning, I think was 45 seconds. Um, and for selling book-wise, I mean, is this more to feed, um, just find that niche and then people look into you or do you actually sell the book on it? I do sell the book on it. So okay. probably every third post or so, I do something on the book. Um uh, either I fit into a TikTok meme and do and, and mention the book specifically, uh, or do a little anecdote from the book, something like that. Um, which is not quite the book top way. The book top way is being more relentlessly there for readers. So your account is set up for readers. My account's set up for people interested in the Cold War. Mm. So I have to have many, many more viewers to sell books. So I've got to have, you know, my my top um posts. I have to look at them now. My top posts probably have uh, let's have a look. I think I've got 1.4 million views on one of them. So 1.4, 1.2 million views are really, really yeah. big views because only a tiny percentage of them will happen to be novel readers. Because um, okay. most people don't read probably uh, in the numbers that I would need. So, but when you're a book talker and all you're doing is being there as a book talker, fantasy writer, whatever, actually you don't need those numbers at all. You can have a thousand views or even less than that and sell books using that because you're talking directly to readers who are looking at your account because they read um interesting yeah so it's a, i do it slightly differently from other people right. but when i teach book talk and i'm going to do a, a session at nink on this i do but i show both ways of doing it sure yeah i think we <laughs> we have to do what goes most best with our personality that's yeah. what i tell people at least like you can't sign up to be a book talker if you're not willing to be a bit relentless but it's interesting to see that book uh, book talk that tiktok is like people can use it to sell books you For know sure. we have all these new things coming out and we always have to be open to seeing what might work for us and it might be surprising like as yeah. you said <laughs> we might think of tiktok more for our teenage daughters but there are other people on there um, doing amazing things. I mean, I find it funny. Yeah. <laughs> I need my as laugh. There's a, as a, <laughs> a lot of good comedy on TikTok. But it's, um, yeah, it definitely, definitely sells books. No question about it. In fact, okay. the, at the top end this year, it's created a number of number one books in the store. Um, so Colin Hoover has gone stratospheric this year. 
Uh, is that because of TikTok? TikTok, because, and it's not her on TikTok necessarily. It's just it's people People sharing. saying, you've got to read this book. Lucy Score, my good friend Lucy Score, she's gone nuts this year as well with one book, Things We Never Got Over. And that's partly her. She's got an account. She's, she's doing it. She's very good at it. But it's mainly book talk saying, you've got to read this book. It's amazing. So suddenly her okay. book's been at number one. In but it's finding store. her fans, too. Finding I mean, her fans. So, yeah. And at the that's part end, of it. if you look at people like Leela Dubois and Jane Ryland, they write spicy romance, both of whom can't advertise because their books are too, too, spicy. Uh, yeah, too spicy and they've had accounts shut down. And they get, they're the ones who get hundreds of views, not thousands of views, but they both make all their money from TikTok and they've stopped doing other advertising, stopped doing Instagram. They just do. Okay. And that drives sales of their books. So absolutely uh, across the spectrum, TikTok is, is selling books and it's doing it for free. You don't have to pay it's true. ads. Um, it's why we put TikTok straight into the Ad for Authors course. We have a big expensive heavily produced module which is amazing done by leader and jane um as part of the ads for authors course and there's not many platforms where we move so quickly to include it we think it's and, and get on now because presumably in five years it will be a pay-to-play platform oh for sure but not yeah. not at the moment sure that or whatever comes later yeah whatever's <laughs> next just yeah. go straight to advertising well that's so you have final flight you have Dark Flight, and are you working on another one, or are you just um, focusing on, um, I guess, getting these two out? No, I'm doing another one. I want to do a book a year, um, which I think is probably the rate at which I can write with everything else going on. Um, I haven't done very well That's this summer. That's pretty good. Though, but you yeah. work full-time, do TikTok full-time. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I'm a, yeah, a renaissance man or something <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah, so it's set up, I don't know, I've probably chosen the wrong thing to do, but again, it's a book, it's a kind of story I wanted to tell. It's set in Iraq in 1956, which was the Ooh. the last days of the REF being there before, before they were thrown out of the country. Um, and uh, you know, the royal family were executed that year. And the Ba'athist revolution, which put Saddam Hussein into power, happened two years after that. So basically, it was the point at which they'd had the British there for 30 years, the treaties that were put in place when when the British created Iraq and Iran and there's other countries around there, or Iraq, I should say, um, they'd run out. And so this is the dog days, the, you know, the wow. fag end, we'd call it, probably that's not an expression you'd use in America because that would mean something different in America, but <laughs> uh, the cigarette end, the butt end, I should say, of, of the RAF. And I wanted to do a story about uh, somebody who is a bit of a, a character who tries to f- sell the royal family, one of the RAF jets before he goes. Nice. Almost comedy. But I'm writing it, and the way these things unfold, this character is really interesting to me. He's kind of all show and and moustache and a bit larger than life, but actually he's broken. He's a broken man from the Second World War, harboring post-traumatic, what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. And he acts in a way that's almost suicidal in the aircraft because he's probably thinks that's how he should end up. He's probably feeling guilty about having survived the war. So that's become a much more interesting story to me than when I first envisaged it. And the idea was it's going to be a novella, which I'll oh, probably, nice. probably give away. But I'm not going to nice. – I won't commit to that until I finish it because it might turn out to be 150,000 <laughs> <It might> t- <laughs> words. And, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it may become a trilogy in itself. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So we will have um, links to – 
Final Flight is the first one. I guess they're standalone, but they do kind of go. Yeah, it's a crossover. Like I say, you can read them in either order. Uh, Final Flight is the book. If if anyone's interested and works wants to know whether I can write a book or not, this is the book <laughs> I give them. Um, Dark Flight is a bit more of a page turner, and it's one of the difficulties I've had actually moving to that because I think I can't write a big literary novel from the heart every time. Um, mm. I I need to set up something that I can write, so more of a two-hour film script type mm-hmm. thing, which is what this is. And I have noticed, I think a few of my my readers said, I don't think it's quite as good as the first book, but I don't, I don't necessarily think they mean it. It's not as good. It's actually, it's a much more confidently written book, but it is not as weighty as the first one. So I think it's a bit of a transition for me, quite a difficult one to get right. get readers who came with me on that first kind of emotional book to this yeah. one, which is a more kind of um, more thrilling. Turn. But I need to be able to turn out one a year, so it needs to be. So yeah, I mean, these thing. are all the things we deal with as writers, right? Like yeah. how much to get into it, how much thriller, how much because you only have so many words before people go, "This is too long." Yes, this is not gone with the wind, guys. We're not exactly. <laughs> I'm not with you for this journey. Yeah. No, so I will have um, links in the show notes because you, you can find James Blatch at jamesblatch.com. We'll have Final Flight there as well and if you are a tiktok fan you can find him at james r blatch i don't know who james blatch is <laughs> james r blatch i don't know i don't know i just look up who james it might be that bodybuilder i was talking the to you about so, um, in australia yeah, yeah in australia and learn about planes <laughs> you can have abs the size of a vulcan bomber uh, he is he is very he very is. fit he's well built he's a nice guy who had a brush with the Lord. There's a story there. He did actually. There is a story there. He did write to me and say, "Can you give me any?" He said, "I'm thinking about writing my story," and I completely encouraged him. I said, "You need. You definitely need to tell your story." So this, we should say, it's just a bit of stupid. Uh, I share a name with somebody in Sydney, no relation, and he ended up in prison for selling steroids in a gym. But actually, his story is not as straightforward as that, and it's a. Uh, it's it is interesting. Yeah. Yes, it is. So maybe maybe he can make an appearance in your book. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, James, for coming and talking to me and to my listeners. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Kat. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils Olympic podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.